You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once-in-a-generation vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again, because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Annalika Moy, and with me today is Harry Krishnan, with whom I'll be discussing the role of public spaces on civil movements. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at DublinLPR or on our website, DublinLPR.ie. Welcome, Harry. Hello, Anne. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Your main research is focusing on discovering how a physical space is transformed into a center for political discussion. Um, that's part of it. I mean, when I started doing my research, it was, it was more on trying to understand the question of modernity and what we call the public sphere in general, right? So mm-hmm. um, where, where do people form their opinions? Where are you know, political discussions and debates? Where do they happen? That kind of stuff. Um, but I quickly realized that a lot of such research was sort of taking into account what we understand as a more abstract space. So we looked like, so it, it was a lot of uh, questions were dealing with how is literature, how, is, how are the newspapers, how are all of these things involved as part of the public sphere, right? Uh, and there was not much importance being given, being given to sort of physical spaces where these opinions are actually sort of formed. Where are these deliberations happening? Where are people sitting and chatting? Um, and I was quite interested in not the institutional spaces, so not the political parties, not the you know, party-run institutions and youth wings, but in the more informal spaces that existed in Kerala, which is the area that I was looking at. Um, because you have quite a strong sort of civil society movement there that, that relies on very voluntary um, associational spaces. So that is what interested me. So then I sort of looked at how physical spaces um, were important in understanding how dominant power structures were subverted uh, and how that sort of is an important cog in the wheel of understanding how modernity was shaped in Kerala in general in the 20th century. Now, when you speak about uh, voluntary physical spaces, what do you mean? Um, it can be, so in the context of, I mean, so, so there is a sort of... Um, um, uh, a mention of these in, in Habermas's sort of work where he speaks about the coffee shops and spaces where people in London and the Western society sort of met. But to him, the coffee shops in London or the clubs in Germany and France were sort of very aristocratic spaces. So it was, it was a very sort of class-based event. So it was where the rich people in society, the aristocrats and the um, powerful and rich merchants would meet and discuss things that they decided were important for sort of public sphere or public life. But what we see in other parts, like in Kerala, one of the things that we see is that such spaces were, from its very beginning, a lot of these association spaces were very much accessible to the lower caste people, because we have the concept of caste in, in, in India in general, which is quite dominant. Now, a lot of these spaces were masculine, which is the same here um, in the West, but also in Kerala. But we see that 
uh, a lot of these spaces allowed for people from the lower castes and the poorer sections of people to get together as well. And I'm talking here of spaces like libraries, reading rooms, tea shops, um, the four squares, just any public space, like the villages in Kerala, you know, as, as they would here, would have a main street or a main crossing, uh, which is where a lot of the men would have congregated. Um, even today, it's not, it's not something that's that much a thing of the past. Even today, you see people congregating in those spaces where they would discuss and talk about the politics and, you know, the gossips in the village, whatever um, kind of stuff. So, um, so there's many of such spaces. There are there are informal ones like the like the spaces that I just mentioned, but also um, the caste-based associations that started growing up and growing in the ninth, uh, in the early 20th century in Kerala. Uh, the present, the contemporary Kerala, the, the spaces like that that you see in contemporary Kerala would be sort of charity organizations, voluntary groups of people who get out for. Uh, I don't know, like once a week, there's a space that I, um, that I saw when I went for my field work where every Sunday um, there is a group of musicians who would come out to a particular street in, in a city called Trivandrum. And for the last 10 or 14 years, they've been doing this every weekend where they come and play music and, you know, sit and talk. They're not, they're not, a, they're not a registered association or a group or anything. They're just people, like-minded people who enjoy music, who come out and, you know, organize events and, and do things like that. So there's a lot of these smaller associational spaces that, that kept cropping up um, when you read about Kerala. And that caught me quite interested to sort of explore that a little bit more. And is there some sort of necessity that you see every one of these spaces has a similar trait or a similar aspect? That's an interesting question. I think, um, I, just, I mean, one of the things that have come up uh, in, in my work is the sort of interest in people to get together and socialize but what underlies that motive is quite different so it seems like in in the late 19th and early 20th century a lot of these movements happened as part of the um, the sort of social reform movement that was taking shape in in, in kerala at the time um, but then in, in the second half of the 20th century, once the, um, so the communist party is quite strong in Kerala and the communist movement started in the 19, um, sort of thirties. Um, and once that happens, then we see that the political parties and the trade unions play an important role in mobilizing people, um, in that sense. And that changes now in the contemporary period. They're not so much political anymore. They, they tend to be, well, they're still political, but they're not organized by political parties, but they're more issue-based. So there's a lot of movement today happening in Kerala um, that bring people together based on um, sort of issues like human rights, environmental rights, uh, interest in music, feminism movements, um, language cultural movements. So these kind of issues are now bringing people together. Um, so there's no one sort of underlying thread, I think, that I could find. If there is one, it could be politics, but but it could be a different kind of politics today than it was in the late in the second twenty second half of the twentieth century, uh, and that would be different from the kind of politics that brought people together in the early twentieth late nineteenth century. So there's there seems to be a political thread that connects all of these, um, but how they're organized. I think continues to keep changing uh, depending on you know the the time and space that we're studying. And do all of these places that you described? So you talked about a, a music festival or a music place, a tea mm -hmm. shop. Mm -hmm. Do all of these spaces have some sort of social 
aspect to them before they become this political place. What do you mean, like a specific social aspect in what sense? I mean, there's still social spaces. They're not like on the surface. So that's what I mean when I say they're political, but they're not organized by political parties. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. some of the people I was talking to, um, like especially in the contemporary times, a lot of youngsters, when I was doing some interviews, they were saying that every time a, an issue happens and a common man or a citizen wants to raise their opinion, a lot of the times they don't want to do it under the banner of an event organized by a specific political party, right? They want to do it as individuals. They don't want to be doing it. They don't want to be marching under a a political party's banner, but they still want to march, for example. So what a lot of these spaces, the new spaces, what they're doing is they're giving them that opportunity to register a protest or to register a dissent without having to affiliate themselves with one or the other political party, if that makes sense. So, so they're still political um, in that sense, but they're essentially sort of social spaces because they are spaces where people come together for, you know, voluntary sort of issue-based events. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, what I, I meant was as well, you have, regardless of political parties, you have, of course, spaces that are specifically tailored and designed for political debates, such as yeah. debates, um, yeah political fora, et cetera. But this tea shop and this uh, music festival, it, it has an underlying, fundamentally underlying social aspect. It was not, desi- the tea shop was not designed to be a- Oh political- yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, that is sort of, um, that hits the nail on sort of the theoretical um, point uh, that I tend to explore because I mean, theoretically, I was using uh, Henry Lefebvre and his work on the production of space, and he does exactly what you're trying to say. So he says that when you analyze space as itself, you have to be able to differentiate uh, the purpose that a space serves. And he divides it into three. He says you have to understand space as conceived, perceived, and lived, right? And there's a difference between how a space is conceived as opposed to how that space is lived, right? And mm-hmm. within that difference is where... Um, the subversion of power structures in society lies is, is sort of what he gets at. And I mean, there's, there's many examples to this. The one that um, is sort of like that comes to mind now is like, if you look at the uh, mid 19th century, there's, there's, a, there's a very interesting um, incident from the 1860s. I think it was the early 1860s in St. Petersburg where the Nevsky Prospect, which is sort of the main street um, in, in, in St. Petersburg, sees a a student protest, right? So you see a a group of students who march down the street for the first time in recorded history where they protest against an increase in fees or some kind of, you know, something of that sort. Um, And that is seen as an interesting rupture in modern St. Petersburg city space because it's for the first time that a a road was being used for that kind of a protest, right? Now, a road is never designed um, for a protest. It's designed for a different purpose. But when it gets... Um, appropriated or diverted for a protest, it changes the nature of that space, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and that nature forever remains changed. And then that starts to, and it's interesting because this, this particular event from St. Petersburg apparently reflects in a lot of books that were written in the 1860s thereafter. So in, um, in Notes from the Underground by Dostoevsky, you see a really interesting sort of incident where the protagonist of the story, who is a poor clerk, um, has to contemplate 
whether he needs to step aside when he's being approached by a rich policeman or an aristocrat on the street. And that's an important turning point in the story because that, that, and, and then he decides in the end that he's not going to step aside uh, when, when he's being approached by somebody from an upper class in society. And that is both a personal and a political statement in the story, right? And it reflects the kind of change that we see happen to those streets as a result of those marches from, from, from an earlier period um, that changes the nature. And we see that continuously. We see it today. Um, I mean, a more modern sort of in- interpretation could be an example from the Occupy Wall Street movement, where what we see is a group of protesters um, taking over a public space like a park near Wall Street, where everyone who walks on Wall Street will have to walk past these people who are protesting on a public street. So a, a park is never designed to be occupied for a protest, right? But when when a protest like that happens, it subverts what the original design of that space is, and which is why space becomes really important for us to understand how protest works um, as and well. But, sorry. Would, yeah. it be fair, would it be fair to compare, for example, if you look at Dublin, and a protest on the streets of Dublin has a different meaning if you are in St. Stephen's Green or at the Spire and at O'Connell. Yeah. Because of its history, would it be fair to say that the history of fighting of uh, the, the risings that took place at the GPO at Trinity at St. Stephen's Green changed the meaning of this physical space? I think so. I mean, I, I think that is... There is that sense to it, definitely. I mean, why is it that we see the GPO or um, Stephen's Green as being an important physical space that reflects the um, the fights that the Irish people had back in the day? It's precisely because those spaces are physically important. You know, they they hold both a literal and a symbolic meaning um, to to how that space can be appropriated for uh, for a protest. So yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think definitely um, there is that sort of a significance. And, and if you care to comment, how, when we look at, for example, the George Floyd and the anti-racist protests that are going on across mm-hmm. the globe, mm-hmm. how does this change this street? What kind of impact does it have for the places that these protests are held? Uh, that's something that, again, it's something that has uh, in the recent past thrown up. So like the COVID in general has been a rupture in, in sort of the, the progress of the world as we know it in some senses, because it's thrown up a lot of very interesting questions, right? Some of this we already knew. knew. So even when I was doing research, so my sort of work ends with the 20th century because the 21st century, like studying the contemporary period means you have to look at digital media and that's a completely new sort of, um, you know, research in itself that I hope to do at some point. Um, But it already were throwing up a lot of these questions. So when I was doing interviews, there were already a lot of people who were talking about the strengths and weaknesses of the social media, right? On the one hand, uh, digital media meant that a lot of the protests um, could be organized very quickly and very effectively uh, on social media in a way that it wasn't possible before, right? Um, but on the other hand, what it all, like a lot of people that I was interviewing had a sense that, yes, the social media is a very useful tool in mobilizing people. But at the end of the day, if you have to pick it outside a police station, you have to pick it outside a police station, right? You have to be physically present um, in, in a space. Now, now with you, COVID, sorry, yeah? Well, 
what you say, it's very interesting, but I, the images of uh, last Tuesday with the blackout on Twitter, where everyone, on, a large group of people on Facebook, on Twitter, on other social medias were posting black squares. Is that yeah. comparable to a picket line outside a police station or a march down O'Connell Street? Uh, I think, I mean, a lot of people might disagree with me on this, but I think there are limitations to sort of digital activism. And I, I mean, and I don't mean this to say that digital activism doesn't have its benefits. Like if anything, in the last years, we've seen the Me Too movement become extremely vocal and extremely effectively um, uh, sort of put out there through digital um, activism. But I still feel, I mean, the Black Square on Twitter, I think it's a more convenient way to protest for people who don't want, uh, who don't participate. So like in, in my own circle, I've seen friends of mine who uh, have continued to remain silent when there was police brutality happening in India, or like when there was um, targeting of certain communities happening in India for, for, the, for, for a majority of the last year, who are now, um, you know, very quick to sort of get, get on the bandwagon and change that sort of um, display pictures with black on Twitter or, or Instagram. And that's not to say that it's not important. People obviously have to be more vocal on Twitter and everything. But I feel like changing it to black squares alone on like black, uh, on, on Tuesday, I don't think it, it was an end in itself. Do you know what I mean? I think mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a reflection of a lot of what was happening on ground already um, that, that resulted to that sort of movement on social media. And is the um, impact the same? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the squares, the black squares, but also the, the French flags that we had a few years ago. Is that impact the same as a march down the street? I don't, um, I mean, I personally don't think so. But again, I, this is not conclusive. It's just thoughts that I've been having um, over the last week as I've been seeing all this as well, because again, you know, COVID has thrown up a lot of really interesting questions. But to me personally, I don't think digital activism raises um, or questions the state or a, or a powerful structure in a way the march does. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like when, and, and this goes back to the question you were having earlier of how a space is subverted or used for a specific purpose, right? Now, the statement that a march or an Occupy movement makes of a public space is a direct sort of challenge or a direct question uh, to the state in, in, in its space, right? It's saying, okay, here's a space that is not designed for this purpose, but here we are coming over and taking it up because we think it's an important matter that we need to sort of be vocal about, right? Now, to me, that's more challenging uh, and more hard hitting than uh, a digital activism can be because it is more, and, and I look at it this way, like it's very convenient for me, let's say, to sit and have access to um, neo-Nazi or right-wing reading material or like websites or groups sitting from the comfort of my room. But I would find it a thousand times more difficult to physically be present in a march that these guys are doing on the street, right? Why is that? Because it's more sort of confrontational when, when, it's, when it's on the street, if that makes sense, yeah? Yeah, so and you have to travel to the right streets, you have to be there at the right time, etc. Yeah, so there's all of these things there. So I do, I mean, I personally do think that a physical protest or a march um, has a lot more to offer than 
uh, a digital activism does. But having said that, I think there are limitations to those physical marches as well. Like we saw, again, I go back to the Me Too movement because I think the Me Too movement showed that digital media and digital activism has a lot to offer because it can transcend national boundaries and it can transcend all of those geographical spatial limitations that a march would have um, in some senses, right? Um, mm -hmm. So there are definite um, pros and cons to both of these, but I think like one of the things that COVID has done is it's, it's thrown up all of these really interesting questions and it's made, it's made it very evident that um, the spaces that we sort of tend to think of as being homogenous aren't really homogenous. Like we, we, might, we might think that a city is sort of a, you know, a cohesive community where everyone sort of works um, as a group. But if anything, the COVID and the quarantine has sort of um, shown that that isn't the case. And there are, you know, some of us who are a lot more privileged than, than people who actually have to go out to work every day. Um, so just the fact that a, a public space is closed, like just a park being closed, doesn't essentially mean that the city, um, you know, has stopped working because there are people working in the kitchens or, you know, in, 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 the, in the hospitals um, that we just don't see, right? And it's thrown up all of those sort of differences uh, as well, in some sense, which is really interesting. And I don't, I mean, I obviously, I don't think we have the answers to all of, all of those questions yet. Um, but it is something to sort of ponder upon, I guess. And to round off a little bit, um, mm -hmm. so you, to go back to the beginning, you described that tea shop and that music festival where people initially came to buy their tea and to drink some tea or to listen to a type of music. These spaces you described, they grew into uh, a, a sphere, a, a place for political discussion where people discussed perhaps the gossip, perhaps uh, political issues. Are there similar places on, in, in, in a digital shape where we can have, where we now have space for discussion, for, for chat, for social interaction, mm -hmm. or for something else that might develop into this type of coffee shop, saloon, tea shop type of political space? Uh, well, firstly, I don't think they sort of grew um, I don't think it was like a conscious change for them to grow into a specific kind. Because when, at, at least when you look at Kerala, you see that these spaces from the beginning had a very sort of political role to give you a very like sort of um, quick example is the tea shops uh, from the early 20th century were precisely spaces where people from different castes, like the so when the social reform movement was happening, we had reformers who organized intercaste dining activities specifically in tea shops, right? Uh, or, in, uh, or in these spaces where people from different castes were encouraged to sit and dine together because that wasn't a common thing uh, in Kerala uh, at the time. Um, but also because it meant that a tea shop was a space where anyone with money could sort of technically come in, pay that money, um, and then have access to those um, services, right? So... I don't think a lot of these were like conscious. I mean, they were very political from the beginning is my point. And similarly, the reading rooms were used very early on by the communists um, in Kerala to create a sort of a class awareness to educate people about um, social issues and the importance of social equity and things like that from the very beginning. Um, now, so, uh, to, to, go, to go to your second part of the question, which is about the prospects that they have in the digital media today, 
uh, again, that's interesting because I don't have conclusive, I mean, from what I, from the interviews that I did, I don't have a conclusive answer to that question, but there were some interesting sort of things that turned up. There was one man I was interviewing who's now in his forties and he, he was growing up in a smaller village in Kerala. And he was saying back in the day, you know, he had a lot of friends in the village and all of them together were part of a, a youth club, uh, you know, a sports club that they had set up. This is in the 1970s and 80s. Um, and he says today, the, the, obviously, they've all moved to different parts of the, of the state or, you know, or some of them have moved abroad. But he said they've all created a WhatsApp group that they've named after the same club that they were all part of when they were in the village, right? Um, in, uh, in the village. But he says the nature has, has changed quite a bit. And this I found really interesting. And he was saying, when they, obviously, when they were you know, in the village, it was a, you know, they would all get together to play. But once the game was done, they would go to the close-by tea shop. They would sit and chat about whatever is happening, you know, politics or gossip or whatever it is. But he says recently, somebody decided to put up something political um, on the WhatsApp group. And the others sort of came and asked him to not engage in political discussion they sort of like dissuaded him from talking politics and i see that a lot in even in my family whatsapp groups or you know spaces digital spaces like that where we try to engage in politics and people sort of see political discussion as something that's um that 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 you shouldn't essentially try and have and i partly agree with it because i don't think engaging with politics um over whatsapp or on facebook is the same as sitting and talking politics with another person in person because I'm not looking at the other person like there's an anonymity to discussing politics on Facebook or WhatsApp that you don't have when you're discussing it in person. So it's, you know, online, it becomes like a one against the other. Um, you're, you're, you, you become like two actors who, who share nothing in common and it's all about your differences politically, which doesn't necessarily be the case if you're talking uh, with somebody else in person. So there is that limitation, but having said that, I think there are also um, like, I mean, on Facebook, you have today loads of groups of people who are like-minded individuals who want to come together and discuss whatever issues in politics. Are they as effective as the spaces, um, as physical spaces? Uh, I don't know. But I think there are, um, I mean, there are benefits to it, obviously, because it can connect people who are not necessarily in the same village or the same city, like physical spaces would have had in the past, um, like I've said. But I don't, I mean, I don't think... I know enough to sort of conclude whether or not they're as effective um, as physical spaces. All right. Well, thank you. That's a lovely note to end on. So thank you for yeah. listening to the Dublin Law and Politics podcast on the role of public spaces on civil movements. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at DublinLPR.ie. This is Annalika and I wish you a pleasant day.